Hey guys, it's Chris. I am excited for you to hear the recording I just had with Jason, our year-end 2023 review. Our annual letter is coming out on February 5th, next Monday, that goes into a lot more detail about what happened in 2023 and what we're thinking about in 2024. We cover a lot today, the first being the fundraise that we're in the middle of and ways that you can get involved. We talk about the biggest wins of the team that we've had this year. We talk about the AI that we've been building and what its capabilities are as of 2023 and how we think that'll grow in 2024. The pipeline that we're looking at, the ways that we were able to increase profitability in certain areas of the company, the many efficiencies that we took over, and thinking about a year where we didn't do as many deals, we had all of that time to focus on operations. And if you've been following our company long enough, you know that our mission is to be not just a great operator, but the best real estate operator in the world. We talk about our exceptional team and talent and how we grew and how we expanded and what we learned this year. And then we really bring it home on an outlook of the things that we think might happen in 2024 and how we're uh, positioning ourselves as a company. So thank you for continuing to uh, join me. Uh, this is the sixth year we've done a year-end review and these keep getting better. And I know one day I'll look back uh, many, many decades from now and it'll be fun to see how this thing uh, evolves. So enjoy the episode and thank you so much for listening. All right. Do you like podcasts? I obviously like podcasts. And one that I like a lot is called The Distribution that Juniper Square puts on. It's hosted by my good friend, who's also been a guest on this podcast twice, Brandon Sedloff. Highly recommend checking out the episode they did with their CEO and co-founder, Alex Robinson. They talk a lot about the current state of the business and really just how they're looking at it going forward. They also did a good one with the CEO of uh, BGO, Bental Green Oak, Sonny Calso, which was fantastic. Juniper Square has meant a lot to Four Capital. Um, we have been one of their earliest adopters. I think we were one of their first 10 customers. And, and really, if you think of how we run our business, it's synonymous with Juniper Square. We use them in every which way we can. They continue to come out with new products uh, that our team devours and adopts. And we really aim at Ford as part of being the best operator in the world. A lot of that is how we deal with investors, how we raise capital, how we treat our investors, how we communicate with them. And a lot of that just happens through Juniper Square. So I've been talking about this company for five years on my podcast for a reason and will continue to. It's just that good. One of my favorite things to do is raise capital. Always been something I love doing. I love putting together deals. But one thing that is always tough for me is putting together the actual pitch deck, which is really important when you're raising capital. Or whether it's a corporate overview or a track record deck or investor reporting collateral, but putting together any kind of deck for guys like me has always just been tough. And so finding a company that could do it and not only do it, but blow your mind and make some of the best pitch decks you've ever seen was really cool. Enter better pitch. Better Pitch has taken the lead and is making some of the best pitch books I've ever seen. And if you think that not having a great pitch book is important when either raising capital, showing off your company, showing off your track record, showing off to investors, 
you're mistaken. I think your pitch book is one of the most important pieces of collateral that you could have. So I highly recommend checking out Better Pitch. They have an incredible team. They will work with you. And if you're a Fort listener and you tell them that, they will work with you on as many revisions as you need until you're 100% satisfied. So go check them out. Jason, welcome back to the show. Here we go again. If you are listening to this, this is the 2023 year in review. And actually, one of the coolest parts about doing this podcast is now that it's been going on five, uh, this is the beginning of our sixth year, we have actually cataloged our thoughts and how we looked at every year in since 2018. So you can go back to episode 258, 194, 103, 45, and 14. And we have done an episode similar to this every year where we spent time talking about what we accomplished the year before, what we learned the year before, but then also what we saw coming up the next year. Yeah. You probably skipped 14, whatever that first one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just go to 14 to realize anything in life is possible because if we can do it, you can do it. Um, I actually went through a lot of the questions like we would. There was no like we've gotten better at how we kind of plan these discussions but back then it was the wild west well we've gotten better as a company and as a team so it gets easier to talk about yeah. it. back then we were more dreaming than we are today so yeah anyway if you're discouraged about where you are in your company just go listen to episode 14 it'll make you feel a lot better all right so we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about 2023 uh which was an interesting year um for lots of reasons that we'll discuss if you're in real estate you probably know why 2023 was uh more interesting than some of the last It was a great year for us, not necessarily because we did a ton of deals, but we focused uh, introspectively and really focused on operations and the team this year, knowing that there were things that we could get in order for coming out the other side of this and kind of really move forward uh, with better operations. Yep. And we actually look at it as a blessing. I mean, we talk about it all the time, but, you know, especially the last couple of years that we had, 21, 22, we, we were moving so quick. Things were happening so fast. The market was on fire. Interest rates, obviously, everybody knows were unbelievably low. And so we were able to take advantage of a lot of opportunity. Um, So although we were improving the company, we talked about all those things we were doing. We were still trying to (coughs) improve operations across the board. But when you're buying, you know, 2022, $500 million worth of deals, you have to spend a certain amount of time executing the deal. And so it limits your opportunity. But when the market pulled back and started to pull back, uh, actually, third quarter of 2022, we started slowing down on the acquisition side to really pay attention to what was happening in the market and, and just uh, be patient. We immediately were able to turn our attention to all the things we had been wanting to get done from you know, technology, improvement of processes, meeting structures, a lot of things to really be the best uh, across the board of everything we do. And so we look at last year as a 100% a complete blessing, even though we were still able to achieve a lot, which we'll talk about. Um, in terms of deals, we were still able to achieve quite a bit. Um, but what we were really able to achieve was how much better the team got, how much better the company got, how more prepared we are for the future, uh, and how much more we'll be able to do in the future because of the work that we put in this year. It's sort of, we talk about it uh, pretty much in the last, I think, three versions of this about laying the foundation. We had a great foundation. We have a great foundation. But what we've really started to do is is add the engine yep. to that foundation. So we have a, we've built the horsepower into the the machine now where we can really 
tackle whatever's in front of us at whatever scale we decide in the future based on what the market gives us. And so we can go into some detail about the things we've accomplished, but yeah, we did a lot this year. We did a lot. I just wanted to start with fundraising. I like fundraising. Because I think it's a, it'll probably, as we look back, be one of the years where it, it one, it was a huge thing that we uh, have been working on, not just in 2023, but kind of dating back to decisions in 2022. Mm -hmm. um, and it really is going to start at kind of probably a new chapter at Fort. And I think the one thing that, you know, we've always talked about and has been a defining um, part of Ford is we've always been uh, privileged to have amazing partners. And we have now over a thousand of them. Thousand and forty-seven. Um, thousand and forty-seven to be exact. And that started, I mean, way back in the day with like eight people that we passed the hat to. Yeah. And everybody's been like, well, what's been your strategy? And the truth is, the strategy has just been continue to do good deals, build a great company, and they will come. We've never really solicited anybody. We've never done a big marketing campaign to get people to invest with us. It's been warm introduction after warm introduction. Uh, we've had amazing partners at people that write us $50,000 checks all the way to people that write us $20 million checks and everything in between. But I think as we were growing and we were kind of seeing what was coming in middle of 2022. And to predicate that real quick, I think there had been a series of years where we were like, should we raise a fund or should we get pre-committed capital or should we not? And the truth is we just kind of kept going year after year and we were continuing to raise everything we needed. I mean, uh, in, in multiple years, raising over a hundred and syndicating over 150 million of equity that year. Mm -hmm. And I think in 2022, we said, we probably need to, knowing that the deal business is probably going to slow down and this would give us plenty of time to figure this out. Mm -hmm. We began taking our first trips up to New York to start exploring. And I think we made a commitment that we are going to do everything we can to raise uh, some type of vehicle that would give us pre-committed capital and an ability to be a lot more competitive in the market. Right. And we would do that by finding new investors that can write larger checks and then bringing along some of the great investors that we already have and redoing our structure from a one-off syndication business to uh, a fund-type structure uh, that gives us pre-committed capital and the ability to run much quicker and grow the company more efficiently. I think we'll talk about efficiencies here, but I think the big thing that we noticed was a lot of our bit parts of our business were getting very efficient. Our capital efficiency was kind of not. I mean, yeah. I mean, we just like everything else in our company, we had gotten really good at raising deal by deal. Yeah. We we built we have a like you mentioned, we have a unbelievable uh network of dedicated uh investors that believe in us, believe in what we're doing, and we want to make sure that they have an opportunity with us forever. And we're going to make sure that that's the case. But where you, when you look at a company like ours, it, it does start to become inevitable that in, in order to align every part of the business to be able to keep up with every part of the business, you have to take a hard look at how things happen in the market and how things, um, especially how capital flows and the timing around those things and decision-making and the ability to execute a deal. And although we are very good at it, like we are at many things of uh, putting together 
uh, OMs, getting them out to our investors, raising the capital, following up, getting all the documents signed, all that stuff we've built uh, efficiencies around. But where we're at as a company is much larger and the scale is so much bigger now from a standpoint of our ability to execute and the deals that we know that are out there. And now that we've expanded across the nation, across the Sun Belt, to have that committed capital, even from our current investors, allows us to make smarter, quicker, more strategic decisions as a whole uh, and be able to move much quicker so that you spend more time focused on the investment, on the execution, on the strategy of actually getting the deal and returning the money as opposed to figuring out how to get the money side done deal by deal by deal. So when you look at the whole world of what we do, there's not a lot of people that get to our size and continue to raise the money deal by deal. We get told this all the time. Um, And it's, it's funny because I think one of the biggest points of feedback we got early on was y'all should just keep doing what you're doing. And that is true. That's one of the reasons why we kept doing it. We kept getting a lot of good feedback that it was the right way to do it. And um, it was for a long time. And I think there will always be a place for the deal by deal. There will always be a place for sidecar deals, smaller deals. I think we'll still find opportunities where it probably probably will happen the same way it's always happened. But for the majority of our ability to execute at scale, and we'll talk about the pipeline, we'll talk about some of the things that we have in place now, it would be a disadvantage not only to us, but to our investors and to everyone else on our team if we did not structure it to align with how well this company is built. Yep. And aligning that equity and a similar structure to move quickly is um, is a very important part of the future for Fort Capital. Yep. So we hired uh, the team at JLL. We hired uh, one of their best uh, teams that focuses on this back in May of 2023. We worked throughout most of the summer to get a, a data room going, and we've been live in the market since November. And look, uh, we're trying to raise four to five hundred million bucks, and we are we've had a lot of great conversations, which is a testament to what we're doing. Really, who we are first. People love the platform, the asset class we've chosen to stick in, uh, and really the markets that that we're wanting to participate in, which, you know, it's not, it's not rocket science that the Sun Belt and the major cities and that have major growth prospects, but you line those three things up. And I think after we get done talking about our team and everything, the, the critical part is, is the team. Um, but the asset class is, is super, uh, uh, exciting to a lot of people, even in an environment like this. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the few investment opportunities that has, basically shown its strength through all the ups and downs from before COVID, through COVID, after COVID, through the market cycle that we just went through with, you know, low interest rates to hyper, hyper growth interest rates, which shocked the whole system. Um, we'll talk about some of the things that we put in place to, to be able to absorb and monitor those type of changes in the market. But, um, it, it just shows the resiliency of this asset class and it just further, uh, strengthens our belief in what, when we look at our pipeline, we look at the opportunity, we look at the growth of these cities uh, that we're targeting. And we look at the sort of both the macro and the micro of what's going on in those markets. And you just look forward in the world with all the things we know are happening with reshoring, uh, supply chain, uh, sort of why people are moving to the Sunbelt, moving to the South, what's going to happen with these markets. You just see a, a at least the next decade of more supply constraint when it comes to this product. 
And so it, it, you know, we're fortunate to already be really good at it, have a system in place, have a team in place to be able to take advantage of it. So we think we're going to be able to provide a lot of opportunity for our investors. Well, if, if, if you're listening to this and, and hearing about this or learning more about this interests you, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we're really excited about it. It's a new chapter for the company. And, um, you know, I think it's something that, like you said, is going to be a, a win for all stakeholders. Absolutely. Um, all right. So at the year end deck or the year end meeting that we go through, we have a deck and there's a sheet that we call 2023 major company wins. I went ahead and picked a few that I thought we should talk about. Some of them we had talked, we had began the conversation on last year, but they didn't actually happen until this year. Um, but I thought I would just go through and and we could jam on a few of these. Sure. The first one was called Invoice Parser, Leverage Document AI to Improve Invoice Process and Reduce Manual Data Entry by Employees. What was that? So... Part of, and I think we talked about this last year, just in doing a cash management strategy. So so taking what normal asset management companies or investment companies do for cash management at the asset level and taking it to a new level, right? Pushing it using uh, technology, data, AI, basically saying how smart can we get at how we look at the the, the need of the asset of the investment and what is coming up and try to plan out further than you normally would and be prepared for any situation that could come through cash management. And so the the further we dug into that, which started as a goal to basically improve cash management across not just all the assets, we were doing it also for the company at the time, just because you're going to solve one process, use it across the board. And what that uncovered was a million things you could improve to really get good at cash management. So this is one example of that. So we started with what was the invoice process. So we first created a very systematic process of how invoices are handled within the company, including how they're received, how they're processed, how they're automated, where that data goes, what happens with that data, who gets notified, when, how, all those things, right? So we we basically built that into FOS, which is our, we've talked about many times, our operating system. In that process, I think we talked about this mid-year about our AI contest that we had. And so part of the AI contest was to challenge the team to come up with creative ways that we could use AI in the future to solve everyday business challenges or needs. And <clears throat> one of those things that came out of that, which we we knew would be, but somebody took the initiative and, and solved that problem was... Uh, using AI to parse data out of uh, a printed document, a PDF, or a, even a handwritten document. And parsing information out of a document just means extracting that data out of a document, right? And not ex- just extracting the words, but extracting it and turning it into data. So ones and zeros language, right? So computer language. So what, what we decided to do as a first test of being able to parse documents because we are now parsing many different types of documents. And in the future, we every document that gets brought into the company, will all the data will be extracted no matter what kind of document it is. Um, and many of our documents in our uh, cloud storage databases are already happening that way. But the invoice parser, what it did is we receive an invoice to our accounting team or to our India team. And instead of that invoice being opened and um, first looked at by a human and then done uh, something done with it, meaning the data taken out of it, put somewhere else, sent to somebody else. The data is automatically extracted using AI 
out of the invoice as soon as we receive it. That information that's extracted automatically gets populated into our database and creates a work order or a, uh, a essentially like a ticket. Imagine that. I'm trying to make it uh, understandable for anybody. We use different language uh, for it, but it, it gets transferred into a uh, form that then can be tracked wherever it goes. And so then it gets assigned, it gets completed, it gets uh, into an accounting process and gets processed, right? But what it eliminated was the human need of opening, taking an invoice, doing something with it, and processing it. So we we are taking a antiquated system and we're making it automated to where in the future you won't need a human to process an invoice at all. And so we're just at the beginning of it. And the tech team likes to say, it's as bad as it'll ever be right now. And it's pretty good. Right. Mm-hmm. So the AI parsing of documents or, or uh, data out of documents is already insanely impressive and it's just getting started. So um, we have handwritten things that get sent to us an invoice form from a contractor or something, and it will literally take the information out of there that they wrote with, by hand. So again, it's just one of those efficiencies that we're starting early and it's already showing massive impact and it's it, the sky's the limit of where it's going to go from document parsing. Renewal Rockstar Initiative. Challenge kicked off for FCP management team to support tenant renewals across the portfolio. Yeah, so this is a good example of how we try to operate as a team in a in a true sense as opposed to um, assigning traditional just job roles and expecting all the work is on that person. It's kind of like how we think about acquisitions, and we've talked about this a lot. While we don't have a traditional acquisitions team, it's more of a team approach where we have different people that are responsible for different aspects of finding and buying and sourcing deals. And so it truly is a team approach. So in this regard on the renewal rockstar, which it's funny because we just awarded the the winner of this today, actually in our team meeting um, for the end of last year. But what this was, was looking across the whole portfolio and, and saying, how many renewals do we have? This We started this at the, um, I think at the beginning of Q3. So uh, we saw two full quarters in the year to go. And we said, we have 180 potential renewals between now and the end of the year at the asset level. Well, most companies would say, well, those leasing teams better get on it, right? They better get those leases done. We got a lot of renewals to go get. And that for sure happens, right? We have an internal leasing team down in Houston and um, we have some great third-party leasing teams as well and we manage them. But we, we put an incentive in place to make sure that those teams were driving in terms of leasing. But we said, what else could we do? So we incentivized our property management team to be a part of the renewal process. So why would you do that? Because who talks to the tenants? The the leasing teams, once they sign the lease, aren't hands-on with the tenants from that point forward until that renewal comes up. And then they follow up with them and say, hey, you know, remember we signed this lease three years ago, your renewal's up, what do you want to do? But there's been somebody talking to them on a monthly basis every month since the day they signed that lease. That's their property manager. So we incentivize the property managers to go get those renewals. Don't just rely on the leasing teams. Incentivize the property managers to be responsible for getting those renewals by building better relationships and solving that problem. And so we create uh, Steve Bailey, who who is our president of property management, uh, came up with this great idea, uh, the Renewal Rockstar Initiative, where he uh, created a, a contest to basically challenge all the PMs to go get the most renewals. And there was a way that we built that into our process where in order to earn that renewal, they had to 
follow certain steps and document in our FOS system um, that would tie them to the lease to show that they pushed that initiative forward. And so uh, anyway, it had a huge impact. So we had many uh, property managers get dozens in, of renewals um, by basically incentivizing them to say, don't rely on the leasing team to do this. Let's go get them. That's awesome. Okay. Speaking of challenges, we did, and you already kind of touched on it, just the company-wide AI challenge. Yes. And we can give the the high-level summary of how it came to be. And then I think it would be cool to say how we rolled it out as far as who did it first and then how it made its way through the company. Yeah, I think that's definitely the most valuable part of it. Uh, looking backwards, I thought, you know, I, th- I thought it was clever when, when I thought of it, but I didn't, I didn't think of it as deeply as I do now at the time. But it really came out of just a, a quick idea that I had one day after a discussion about things we were doing as a small group with AI as a, we had a few people on, on the executive team that I was working closely with to, to use some, uh, chat GPT tools and plugins and things. And I think we talked a little bit about this on the last one, but we, we, we were making real progress in terms of like what was possible and how we were already using it every day. And we talked about it in our executive meeting, but uh, you know, when you look at a group of executives or leaders in a company, you, you're not going to have all people that are super interested or into or willing to make that leap from the way they do it today to some new thing that no one's ever done, ever done, especially when it comes to AI. So um, at the time, we had a group of seven interns that were really, I mean, not all of our interns have been phenomenal, but this group of seven seemed to have more cohesiveness and uh, sort of excitement as a group than we had had in a long time. And I think it was mainly mainly just because there were so many of them at one time. And so I I had an idea one day to, instead of uh, trying to get the management and leadership and then the the rest of the team on board with using AI, I said, you know what, I'm going to go back to my desk right now. And I use ChatGPT and I said, create me a contest for our interns to use AI, use you, the ChatGPT, use AI to solve a business need in the department that they're working on and create rules around it. And uh, we only have two weeks to do it and they have to solve a deal. And, you know, so we, I basically put that prompt into ChatGPT and in five minutes, we had a contest on paper that within the next day, we rolled out to the interns. And they had two weeks to complete it. We went through that process. They ended up all completing an unbelievable AI contest. And it, it worked very well. Um, but, but the value there was, looking backwards, was, uh, and, and I, 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 this is the part I was saying, I did, don't think I had thought this deeply about it, but it became super powerful to start with the interns. Looking backwards, you start with the interns because if the interns can do it and then show the rest of the company that they were able to solve a problem using AI, at an intern level, then if I'm a, a person that works in the company or a manager and I'm looking at an intern solving these problems using AI, then it's going to make me want to get interested really quickly because that's essentially could be looked at as a threat in the future for my job, right? And so what wasn't meant to be like a negative thing, but it was meant to show what is possible, even if you're still in college, look what can be done. And so we took that concept and we had everybody come in and watch the presentation of the interns. So the whole company watched the presentation of the interns. And then right as we finished the contest, we awarded the the winners and they all were awarded something. Um, but we awarded the winners of the contest. 
and then immediately rolled out the same contest to the rest of the company, except for the managers or the executives in the company. So basically every other team member now was participating in the same contest. And, you know, obviously they were now incentivized to do it and they want to do it because they just watched all these interns do it and get rewarded for it. And so it became a very powerful tool to get everybody on board with not only the thought of AI, the ability to use it, but the willingness to use it, right? So what it really solved was the willingness for an entire team to not be afraid to go try to adopt AI. And it it worked pretty well. <laughs> All right, two more. Okay. Team meeting structures. We've never actually talked about this before. Yeah, this one actually, we did talk about it this morning in the team meeting because I, I re-highlight why this is so important. Yeah. Um, you don't usually hear this on like a big team wins category about meeting structures. Yeah. And again, I, I got to give uh, a, a mentor of ours and a, a, a great coach of, of ours, um, Lex, you know, Lex uh, who has helped us a lot uh, in the past. And, and hopefully this year, again, he's going to help me some more um, or help us some more. But um, essentially, he helped us define a meeting structure for our executive team several years ago, which is turn is proven to be invaluable and we've gotten really, really good at it. And it's very simple. I won't go through all the details of it, but it, but it creates a, a structure that creates consistency, alignment, and, uh, an understanding of what's going on in a company, in a department with any group of people that that conversation can continue over time in a consistent way to where it creates a transfer of knowledge or that shared consciousness, which we've talked about in the past. So creating a meeting structure that that helps the meeting feel continuous and not every week we're ad hoc jumping from thing to thing, talking about something new, whatever you decide to bring in, what's in your world, lots of different meeting structures out there. And there's a lot of ways to run meeting structures like uh, level 10 meetings and and other uh, EOS structures that that work just fine. This structure is different and it's very controlled, but what it really has done for us now that we use AI has created um, a systematic way that we talk about the company in meetings, which allows AI to listen. So we record every meeting and then and not, not because we want to listen back to the meetings or judge people or anything like that. It's not for any person to take advantage of. What it does is the the meeting itself is structured in a way that the AI is listening and taking notes and then creates value back to the participants after the meeting, right? So any Zoom meeting right now will take AI notes and they give a good summary. But it is 10x more valuable if that meeting structure is consistent, repetitive, and aligned the order, the things that you talk about. And it doesn't mean you don't talk about different things, but it means that there is a series of things in your world as a, say you're a manager in a department, there's a series of things that you're going to touch on. And they, you maybe some weeks you touch on some, some weeks you don't touch on them. But inside that structure that you're going to discuss are a series of things. The AI gets really good at following the week to week, obviously. And so what you get is a history of everything you've talked about in a meeting, but not just what you've talked about, everything everybody else has talked about. And so you can start looking back through your meetings by just asking questions to the AI. What are some common themes that we've talked about over the last three months? What are some things that we've talked about that just continue to come up? Uh, How could we improve our meeting discussions? Where are we wasting time? It's amazing the things you could ask 
if the AI is listening to a consistent conversation that has been growing over time. So what you really get is a good memory of everything that you've been discussing. And what happens with most meetings is there's a lot of bouncing around one week to one week. Somebody takes vacation, you take vacation. Uh, sometimes you get off track. All those things kind of break down over time, the efficiency of what you're trying to get out of a meeting. What this does is keep it in one track forever. So the structure was one thing, but it's the structure combined with the AI. And then if you take that structure and you go, well, what's, what's important about the structure? Well, we're from a data standpoint, because it's structured, we are recording it, but that is also going into our database. And so not only does it know what the consistency of the discussion has been, that those meeting notes are also connected into our AI, which knows everything about for capital, what we're working on as a company, our goals, all the jobs that are outstanding. It knows everything, all the data that's already in our system. So you could say, how well did this meeting align with the things we say we need to get done? And it will literally tell you, it will tell you, here are the things you discussed that are not uh, identified as objectives in the company. No one's working on them. They're not in anyone's job list, right? It's, it's amazing what you get when you do things repetitively like that and have a structured way you meet. So it's, it's uh, one of those things we talked about this morning. It's hard to measure the value today, but if you see the results that it's already producing and you, you sort of fast forward, that is going to be invaluable. It will be the standard of how people take notes or... I was going to say, do you think this is something that eventually becomes like everybody does? This is how meetings will be run in the future? Yeah. So like, here's an example of something we're doing right now because of how valuable this already is. We have a great, you know, Zoom meeting room. All the, you know, we have a Zoom set up, instant, create a meeting, people call in, standard stuff. But what we find is... What, where's the real value? The real value is the quality of the meeting notes, the quality. So if we're talking about the quality of the meeting notes, we're not talking about a human. We're saying the quality of the recording. If we're saying the quality of the recording, we're saying, well, how do we know who's talking? The AI is good at that, but how can we get better at it? How good is the quality of every word that's said? So now what we're focused on in terms of improving this process is we're re- setting up every meeting room with a microphone system so that everyone has a clear assigned microphone that those notes are perfect. There is no uh, confusion ever about who said what, when, and how the conversation went. If two people are talking at the same time, it won't matter. Somebody interrupts somebody, it won't matter. Those little things will make a big impact in the future because you'll have really, really clean notes. Okay. Then that's a perfect time to lead into and if anybody's listening going chris say something it's just been jason don't worry my time is <laughs> i told him to interrupt me don't, I don't worry my time is coming but it's not going to be on this one we got to wait a little longer you keep saying ask our ai ask a question to the ai yeah who I was is purposely saying that because i knew you're gonna ask this question so so we're really clever at fort we have fos which stands for fort operating system and so we thought it would only be fitting that the AI that we built was named was Foster. Got to give credit where credit's due. Which that was is, Hannah's idea. That was Hannah's idea. Uh, Hannah has had a, a many brilliant ideas, but this might go down as, as one of the best. <laughs> the naming. Um, yeah. So FOS had a little child, and that little child's name was Foster. 
And we touched on it at the end of last year, but it was more of just like a concept, like here's what we're thinking might happen this year. Yep. And I even remember like a meeting that we had, it was that long meet lunch we had at like Shady Oaks for like four or five hours. And I was on and fire. And we were kind of like, how can we incentivize, what are we incentivizing? How are we going to like really move this thing forward? And so let's maybe talk about what's been built to date. Mm -hmm. And then you can even do some forward looking, like what that might look like heading into 2024 as well. Yeah. And I, I think we were trying to, we were kind of uh, not beating around the bush, but we were being a little bit cryptic the last time we talked about this because there were things that we had ideas about, but we, we didn't want to let the cat out of the bag too soon. I think we thought maybe we had, we didn't want to give people other ideas, but we're so far into it now that the things that it's doing, I'm happy to say, because I think it's super valuable and I think other people should be working on it. Yeah. Um, and if they can figure it out, more power to them. But uh, what Chris mentioned is, yes, we, we have built our own AI. And so what does that mean? It means, you know, you have uh, AIs that are available to anyone right now, which everybody knows, ChatGPT is the, the yeah. big one where it's just a large language model that you can access and ask it questions. And it's very good at predicting what should come next, the next language, the next word, whatever. And it's it's really good at connecting concepts. Um, so you can give it several ideas and it can combine them very, very well um, and give you really, really good insight and feedback. We took that same idea, but the, the when we talked about this, the future was always going to be how can a company do that with their internal data without putting it in a public setting like ChatGPT, um, where um, you're you have private, proprietary, sensitive information that really you just want your team to access. That is the problem we've been working on for the last six or seven months, um, probably a little longer than that now. What we've been able to do is we've successfully built our own uh, version of that. So we have we started with building a corpus of data, which we already have a we already had a really nice clean database. But what we did is we said we're going to build a subset of that database, which is a corpus of everything we would want an AI to know about Fort Capital. So we start putting in this corpus everything that you can imagine, such as culture information, who are the people. What's our mission? What do you mean, who are the people? Like, who are the people? What are their names? What are their positions? What are their job descriptions? What are their job responsibilities? When did they start? What is their birthday? What's their favorite uh, book? So everything about them that we already have on file. But what about culture index? Culture index. So anything, their what profiles. Are their personality traits? What are their personality traits? Um, they like to be talked to? Yeah, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? So then it's, and, and because we can help the AI understand what those strengths and weaknesses are. And I'll get into more detail about how it already knows that. Um, we, we give it all the information we know. So it has a very good understanding of, say, a person, but it also has a very good understanding of Fort's mission. It has our flywheel. It has our, our mission, our purpose, all those things that we have as documents, but it also has the transcript of every podcast you and I've recorded. It has every annual letter that we've ever put out. It has all the information that you could imagine that we have on Fort, which is why things like this have been so important, it has those as a back as a framework of understanding as an AI. So you start with this corpus, and I could go on and on. There's millions of pieces of data in there, and so we started. Which my my goal with the tech team was to first uh, uh, sort of strategically guide them by saying, let's start by first solving the culture 
what we call the culture agent. So every AI is essentially an agent. You ask it a question, it, it helps you find the answer. So he said, let's start by building the corpus around culture, people, team, those things. Put our goals in there, our OKRs, what are the people working on, all those things. Let's create a tool that is our own AI like ChatGPT, where if I'm an employee, I can ask a question and it not only knows who I am, what my strengths, what my weaknesses are, how I communicate, how it should communicate to me, because it also knows how to communicate to you. It also knows all the jobs you're working on. It knows how those jobs are connected to our OKRs as a company. And it knows how to help you stay on track or it can answer a question about what you're working on and how it impacts the company. So as an example, this morning, we, we showed the team some of the things it's done where a team member could simply ask Foster, hey, uh, I just got to work today and I'm not quite sure what I should work on first. Foster, what do you think? And it will give you a beautiful summary of why you should work on certain things based on your job, your job description, your current jobs that are outstanding, which ones are past due, which ones are still have time, which ones are related to company OKRs that have a bigger impact. It knows all these things so it can guide you. It doesn't mean it's the only answer the person should follow, but it will get you on track really, really quickly. And so that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I mean, we're just talking about this is the very, very basics of what it can do. But what it's what we're going to start it with when we roll this out to the team uh, in the next uh, quarter or so is to basically give them a tool to have quick, instant visibility and access and support on everything about their job, but from an agent that knows who they are. So one person might be a person that likes detail or likes a quick feedback. It would know that through the culture index based on the dots. And this is where it becomes really powerful. You say, that's cool. It's got all your data, but how does it have other information? Well, our AI is connected to not just ChatGPT's large language model, but to six or seven of the other best open source large language models. So our AI can tap into many different large language models that are have massive amounts of public data, data sets, all kinds of things. So we have the ability to ask questions about internally what's happening at Fort while simultaneously having all the data of the outside world to combine to get the best answer. And so um, it, it's, I, you know, I, I'm not positive where other companies are, but what I know is there is not another real estate company like ours who has announced they have anything like this. And so what we believe is that we have an advantage, a slight lead, um, and we'll be announcing and basically showing some of what's happening in this world in the next few months um, because we do think it's important and we do think people should know about it. We think other people should be doing it. Um, and we want to learn more. So we do want to know if there's other people out there doing it. We don't think that um, other people, like no one else is going to do this or that they're not doing it. Other people are going to do it. But we we are going to be showing what we're doing, sort of how we're doing it and sort of where we're at because we do think it gives us a market advantage. I mean, there's like a million things we could dig in. I think the one thing, and you you were, you were kind of kept hitting on it, but I'll just make it a little more clear to, to listeners is, like how people like to be talked to. So yeah. some, like, I think for listeners in, in the same situation, conveying information, 
I like to see information in like five bullet points and each bullet point should be as short as you could possibly write it. Mm -hmm. There's some people that want that same information in lengthy paragraphs with tons of detail. I find that offensive. Yeah, it's Uh, irritating. It's irritating. But so when you're talking about how to communicate, it knows who you are. It will present the same information to different people in the company based on their preferences of how they best take it in. Yeah. And then some of my features, which are probably the most basic and probably any company could have this, but I still like it, are, hey, Foster, how many deals are we underwriting in San Antonio right now? Oh, it just automatically tells you 12. I don't have to go dig through dashboards and figure it all out. Or how many leases are outstanding at that property? How many leases are outstanding? How many are uh, in LOI? Um, Hey, can you go retrieve for me the survey uh, for 123 Hempstead Hill instead of going and digging through files for 30 minutes to find it? It'll just pop it out there. So I forget about some of the most basic stuff. The most basic. Because that is... But if you're listening there going, and we've always talked about this efficiency... A lot of companies like uh, there's the chicken of every company, which is the stuff that we all deal with. Mm-hmm. There's the cool stuff that each company has. But like anybody listening to this and every time I mention this to people and I'm like, how much time do you think your team spends like digging through Dropbox every year, just searching for a file collected across all the team members times all 300? How many hours? Right. And now you'll just be like, yeah, go find me that one thing in our deal or right. Go find me that one line item of data that I need. Um, Here's there's one there's one, and the, oh go ahead. Well, the only thing I was going to say is, and then AI improves itself is like, oh, why are thirty people in the company continue to ask for this one thing? Okay, right. that's probably something that should be on somebody's radar. That these types of information are constantly asked for. Oh, the inefficiencies get highlighted really quickly using AI. Um, an example that we're using right now, which is really impactful, which is kind of piggybacking on what I was already saying, but it's probably a more clear example, kind of similar to what you were just giving is if you take those meeting structures we talked about, you take the notes out of those meeting structures, you take, let's say that's a manager that's, that is, has a meeting structure like that. And his, the team of that person has a bunch of things they're working on. We call those jobs. Let's say they have a bunch of jobs. And those jobs are parts of bigger projects, right? So there's a bigger project and that project is broke up into smaller tasks, which we track through our system called jobs. So let's say all that stuff is in progress, but I'm a manager and I've got to get ready for my meeting and I've got to come into the executive team. And my job is to give a five minute quick update about every, the progress of my team, what happened last week, what the priorities are this week, and any support or or hurdle requests that I have going forward as as a manager, right? To an executive team. Every manager that's in that situation has to be prepared every week when they come in. So they have to go look through their team. They have to have good conversations with their team. They've got to be tracking everything. They got to go in FOS and look at everything. That's what happens today. And we have great dashboards that show a lot of this stuff. But what the way AI is being used already, and Greg loves this, our uh, executive vice president of technology, because he obviously was the one that did it first. He uses Foster to say, Hey, Foster, and he's created his own prompt where he all he has to do is basically regenerate every week. He says, hey, Foster, please give me an update of these things from my team with detail about where they're, what they're working on, where they're at in the progress, how that's tied, which company OKRs it's tied to, and what we should work on next week to keep the ball moving forward. And are there any issues we should be aware of? And oh, by the way, over here on a separate page, just go ahead and create me a table of all the jobs that were completed this last week. And he generates that at the push of a button. So his entire weekly meeting 
uh, sort of overview, he doesn't even have to do it. He literally walks in and he smiles every time. And he's like, this is everything we did last week. This is what the team's working on. This is what we should work on next week. And this is how it's going to impact the company. And a foster actually generates that for him. And you go, well, how can you try the, the number one question people are going to have out there listening are going to be, well, yeah, but how do you trust it? How do you know it's right? All that work has been done long ago by creating clean data. And so uh, what it really does is way more powerful than an individual trying to go back and figure all that out and put all the pieces together and make the notes and come in and try to be so prepared. We are smart as humans, but we cannot keep up with that amount of information, even if we go back and work really hard to get it. But what we really can't do is we can't connect the dots the way AI can to say, okay, yeah, we completed these three jobs, but did those really move the ball forward? Did they really, without being objective, right, Um, or subjective? We, we, We are more influenced by our own thoughts. AI is not. It would look at those and say, no, those are not tied to a company objective. They're not moving the ball forward. Therefore, yes, you did them, but you did not have an impact this week. That's what you get from AI. You actually get the real meat of what's happening, not just the fluff. So essentially, as a manager, you don't have to worry about, you know, are we really, are we really getting stuff done? Are we really having an impact? Or is my team just like working really hard, but we're not really moving? And that's what happens in a lot of companies. There's a lot of busyness. Yeah. But is is there really movement? And so that's what I think AI is going to have a huge impact on. Do, do we have just like one example? Maybe it could be like lease abstracts. I know we talked about invoice parsing, which is mm-hmm. through AI, but like something that like a real estate person that's listening would go like lease abstracts is always the one. But yeah. what's something besides invoices that we've totally substituted with AI to where tons of human energy is not going to have to go into it anymore. I mean, is the it list, legal documents, is it? Yeah, the list is endless. But uh, I mean, a lot of basic things that are repetitive, right? Yeah. That you would normally have to go back and and manually do. Uh, legal's one of them. Like there's a lot of things that we have to update or check or uh, find in legal that we no longer have to do. Yeah. Um, you can simply ask questions. Um, you can find information. It's kind of like what you were talking about with the document or with the uh, finding documents. You can also find information. You can search leases by just asking que- uh, great questions. Um, I mean, there's really, it's, this is the craziest part is it is endless. Like the, everything that you could possibly imagine, you technically can do. The problem is most companies are so far from even starting, they can't even imagine all the things. But once you get to a point, say where we are, all of a sudden you start to see, oh um, my gosh, everything's possible. Like yeah. you could literally just keep stacking them on endlessly. Um, so I'm trying to think if there's something that makes probably the biggest impact to a leasing, uh, like a, you're talking about a broker or something. So, yeah, or so like here, lease abstracts or. Yeah. So I guess here's, here's one. Yeah. Lease abstracts an easy one. Like we can abstract any lease, just literally scrape all the data out of it. We tell it what we're looking for. It gets really good at understanding it, looking for that information and scraping it out. Um, that goes back to the document parsing. Yeah. It's the same thing. So that's another thing you realize when you get deeper into AI. It, there's really, uh, there's a few big things that it does that you can apply broadly, right? And it solves lots of problems. This is more on the acquisition side. So acquisition notes, right? So as we're collecting feedback on properties, on notes, and we're starting to analyze the likelihood of a transaction or 
we're, we're, we're trying to determine if there's real progress being made on a transaction, on an asset. We're tracking, we're sending an LOI, we're negotiating. What you start to see is kind of like the meeting notes. You get a track record of communication. You start to see a trend. The AI can start to help you move and rank the deals that are actually moving in the right way based on the conversations that are being had. Mm. So you could start to see what's real and what's not without having to go back and go, oh, what was the last conversation on that deal? Didn't that guy say he might be interested? Oh, didn't he say if we sent him an offer for X, he would consider it, right? Yeah. You don't have to do that. If those notes are being tracked, and, and sometimes we get those from third party, right? So we're getting notes from people. We don't have to go back and ask them what, what should we do next, right? We start to get influence or we start to get feedback from the AI to help us make a decision on what we should do next. All right. Well, you were mentioning acquisitions, and I think it would be a good time to talk about our pipeline. In 2023, we purchased just under 100 million. It was three deals, but really one of those was a carryover from 2022. So it was like two deals generated 23 with a closing in like January, mm -hmm. which was um, we raised 41 million, a little under 700,000 feet which if you go back and listen to our 2018 episode would have been a dream banner year. Yeah. Um, it was a slow year, but I think it was a slow year for the right reasons. We were, we were just giving what the market would bear, which was not a lot. And we were being super patient. I think the key there is uh, that was strategic and a, and a decision that we made to not pursue almost anything that we would have pursued when interest rates were low, not because we didn't think there were still good deals or that they were potential future opportunities. It was really important to wait and see what the market was going to do. Yeah. And I think that was the smartest decision that we've made because we talked about it in the beginning about how it gave us the time to really just hyper-focus on improving everything across the board, including our current portfolio and how we operate. Um, but I, I think the decision to do it was more an internal one, not all driven by the market because we did see a ton of deals and we saw a ton of opportunity, but we chose not to pursue. We definitely weren't going to stretch and try to make numbers work on anything. And so I think it was a very strategic, patient move for us to wait and see what the market did. And now, it, you know, we're starting to see it come back to us a little bit. And our annual letter will be coming out on February 5th. We're a little bit behind this year, but we wanted to make sure it was super dialed in. But some of the data that we pulled from that, mm -hmm. and I think this is, goes back to, you know, why would you be trying to raise four to $500 million of committed capital? There's $27.8 billion worth of property that we've identified in markets that we want to be in that check the boxes that in theory, if there was a seller willing to sell, that's the total kind of market size that we're going after. And again, you ask like a lot of people, um, they're like, well, we're an industrial. It's like, do you even know how big your market is? Not really. Do you even know which buildings you would actually buy? Or are you just like cold calling addresses that, you know, you Googled? So that's the total size. And so within that, our goal isn't to have all of them, but it's always to have a certain percentage of it, call it 10 or 15%, which could be more realistic. Mm -hmm. And so we've identified 2,936 portfolios, which encompass 14,100 properties. 
that leads us to 520 potential deals. And I think we would define a potential deal as something that has a reasonable chance of happening in the next 12 months. That, yes. And that would it 12 to 18 months. So yeah. we, we track out a little bit further than that's depending on the asset. But what we've really done with that, that final number there is we've ranked all those buildings or all those properties, all those portfolios to come up with what we think are the, not only the most likely, but which ones are the best. And so we've narrowed those markets down to be what we think not only give us the best opportunity to complete a transaction, they're, they're the best things we would want to buy. So we try to focus on only the things that we think are real and are going to match up with our return requirements yep. because we, we are not interested in just going and buying deals. What we need to do is figure out which ones are real and which ones would we actually buy that would line up with our investment thesis and provide the returns that we need to provide. Well, I think... I think the one thing to give a little more clarity on also is when you say 2,936 portfolios, mm -hmm. that we often get a lot of, hey, explain what that means. Good point. So maybe you could go into FOS maps a little bit or some of the, the technology just there that is more just saying most people would look at a list of buildings and go, oh, that owner owns one building. Yeah, but we've tried to do one because there, uh, something you have to know about our asset class: the individual deal size. If you're just buying a building, they're usually pretty small. Right. And the further you move up chain, you either have to buy a really, really big building, which there aren't many of those, or you start needing to buy clusters of buildings or groupings of buildings. And I think one of the impressive things that we talked about last year, but it's now really starting to play out, is. Um, where we can see a bunch of buildings that if you just went through the legal records would look like owned in 10 different partnerships. Or even CoStar. Or even CoStar, you can start seeing, no, there's common ownership. This is one owner. And so our maps show us what are these big groupings of buildings, whereas the average eye would just see one building per owner. Yeah. So FOS maps is what you're referring to, which we talked about in previous episodes. But our FOS maps is really a visual tool of the data that we have behind the scenes. And then what we can do with that data, we can look at it any way we want through the maps, right? And the maps gives us quick access, quick visual, quick uh, ability to uh, update, follow up, that sort of thing. And so the, it becomes invaluable to be able to see the world through your own map. But the portfolio view is something that we realize when we, when we talk to equity, we talk to the markets, we talk to brokers, you often do get that pushback of, well, there's really just not a lot, but a lot of uh, larger deals out there. And when we're talking about larger deals, we're not talking about the multi-hundred million dollar deals. Yes, those are out there. They're nice. But those are portfolios that have already been aggregated for that reason, usually, uh, usually already owned by institutions. What we're talking about are instead of looking at a, you know, a hundred thousand square foot building, are there six 100,000 square foot buildings that might have common ownership that otherwise can't be seen? Right. And that's just a rough example. But there, that's essentially what we, we were trying to figure out. And it's very hard to see that through any sort of data set that's out there publicly right now. So what we did is we took all the data that we could combine and we used some really interesting, partially AI machine learning uh, tools. And our team, I think they did a brilliant job here. They came up with a process and it's in our annual letter, we talk about it briefly, a simul similarity matrix. So it, it's based on this fuzzy matching principle, principle. 
and then a similarity matrix. So it creates behind the scenes, uh, the computer is looking at a million pieces of data and figuring out where there is similarities across a property from one to the other. And what it's able to do is figure out where there is very, very strong likelihood that the same people, person, entities, whether it's multiple or not, there is some commonality somewhere behind the scenes that we can't see that make this a potential portfolio that other people don't know exists. And, and it's, it actually has proven to be very accurate. Um, and there are ways you could probably go do a lot of you know research and figure out where individual portfolios exist. But to see the whole world like that in an instant is very, uh, we think, very valuable. And so that's how we've been able to spot so many opportunities out there. And so that way we can target slightly bigger opportunities than the average investor in, in a local market while still uh, finding opportunities smaller than the giant institutions, right? So what we're finding is that middle ground of deals that are worth our time. So call it 15 to 50 million and some plus, some you know bigger and smaller than that. But we're able to find these in groupings where we can go pick up a portfolio of 5, 10, 15 buildings um, that others might not see. All right, we've talked about pipeline. Kind of two interesting things that came up that in our annual letter is under the section on profitability, which is a key part of our flywheel, but it was two things that I think um, were interesting. And one of them's called dynamic interest rate stress testing. Mm -hmm. What is that? So it's kind of like when, you know, back when COVID hits, um, there's things that, you automatically realize you could get way smarter at, right? And in COVID, we immediately, within months, we said, you know, we need a uh, rent relief process. If somebody asks for rent relief, rent relief what are we going to do? So we we built all these things into our system where if we ever had to deal with this again, we're prepared, right? Um, and ended up, we didn't have to do it, but we got way better because of COVID from things like that. When interest rates started to move and the debt market started to tell us what was required uh, going forward and how the world was going to look. And this is back when they were just going from four to four and a half, four and a half to five, right? So I'm talking at the very beginning. We started looking at that world and looking at SOFR caps and reserve requirements and, you know, uh, the future need uh, potential. And then we started looking at the forward yield curve. And that forward yield curve started moving so quick, as everybody knows at this point, we decided fairly early on uh, that we needed to have a dialed in process built into our the way not only that we underwrite, but the way that we forecast and not just rely on an analyst to update it every month, but how do we make it dynamic and how do we make it live and how do we make it a part of the performance of the asset on a daily basis, right? We signed leases. What's the impact to cash flow? What's the impact to our yield? What's the impact to our debt service? What does that do looking forward? Are we going to hit a moment in time in the future if rates keep moving based on the yield curve? Is that going to impact the, the ability to execute this asset, right? You just want that baked in. You don't want to have to think about it. You want it to be a part of your observation at all times. And so what we started to do is redo the model in terms of our forecasting models that we use and 
make them more real time by updating a process in, in our accounting software that we use by doing market profiles where instead of looking at an asset whole, like as a whole, we broke it down literally suite by suite and we now require the leasing teams to update the probability of every suite every single month. The likelihood of a lease, is it going to renew? Is it not? Did we sign a new lease? Do we need more downtime? Do we have enough downtime? Do we have enough TI? Are we going to need more CapEx? All those numbers that are baked into the long-term performance of an asset looking forward, we now update those on a monthly basis, suite by suite, 1,900 suites. And what that allows you to do is have a real view at all times of your asset of the most likely looking forward the next two, three, four, five months. And it could be longer depending on what type of leases you have in place, but it's looking forward. And then in the model, you're able to build in the forward yield curve and the active cost of those rate caps, if you're assuming you have any, um, and you're able to bake that into the cash need of the asset right then. And so it's dynamic. So if any moment you are looking forward and you have an outlay of cash coming from a bank requirement 18 months from now, that will start reserving the day that your asset isn't on track to have enough cash to do that. Mm. And so what that allows us to do is not think about, are we over-distributing or under-distributing or um, do we need to push rents or do we need to let off a little bit and, and sign more leases or whatever the thing needs to happen at the asset level, we can see very clearly because baked into our long-term forecast is a real-time view of what that asset's going to need from a debt perspective. Yep. And so um, we're, we're just trying to get hyper, hyper smart at being able to look forward and plan for the worst case scenario, but operate knowing what's happening today. All right. Uh, and then I think on just the backs of that, cash reserve management. Yeah. And that's... It's, I don't know if there's anything else to add. It's the, it's the same process. It goes just a little deeper, but what, what it allows us to do, so the cash reserve side of that is the other team's ability to know that. So from an analyst side, from an analytical side, we're able to give that information to the rest of the team, property managers, leasing teams, right at the asset level, so that they know how the reserves need to look at all times so that we're never uh, overspending or underspending on an asset when it's the right thing to do, right? So what, what it's allowed us to do is create reserve item, reserve line items for every aspect of, a, of an asset that we know are accurate for the future need all, at all times. And so we've broken that up as opposed to just having one big reserve bucket. We know exactly how much TI we need. We know exactly how much money we need for insurance, taxes, all those things. We, and a lot of that we already had, but it's it's broke up and it's tied, it's accurately tied to the future need, including that forward yield curve that we talked about and the potential of interest rates uh, being higher in the future. How do you think most people are doing that? I mean, I, I'm <laughs> sure a lot of people do it. So I'm sure some people are listening to this going, yeah, duh. Duh. But it's not, and, and I'm not, we already did it. But we what know I'm, there's a lot of people that don't. We do, do know there's people they that just don't. just kind of thumb it. Right. And we did it. But what I'm saying, I guess what I'm probably not being super clear on is we we tried to take it to another level where all of this is automatic. We're not having to do this as a manual process at the end of each month or each quarter when we go to look at the analysis and distribute money and go, oh man, we're going to need this or we're going to need that. It's a part of the view of the asset at all times. Yep. And so we can clearly see 
if we're where we need to be anytime we look at the asset. Yep. And that can be every day. We'll get into the 2024 outlook in a little in in just a second. But I just want to highlight uh, the team for a bit. And really, in a year where you saw a lot of people contract, we actually expanded. Um, we added 11 new people. So that brings us to 54 total people. 55 we, now. 55 now. Okay. <laughs> it's changed. 55 here in the States. Uh, and we have a wonderful team over in India. I'll do a quick shameless plug. Check out Relay Human Cloud. That's how we use to hire. They're phenomenal. And they are really phenomenal. And our good friend runs that company. And we've helped a lot of other companies uh, get onboarded there. And we can't say enough about our India team. We opened uh, two offices, uh, Houston and San Antonio. Mm -hmm. So that brings us to four total. We have Fort Worth, Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio. Mm -hmm. Um, And we talked about this last year, but we actually had people go through it this year after a lot, I, I don't, you would know the exact time it took to prepare and over get all year. the material ready over a year. Uh, we launched Fort Capital University this year and we've had 17 people graduate from it. And mm-hmm. if you just want to highlight maybe what that experience was like, I know we did multiple training sessions. Yeah, we had two versions of it. One is for the executive team. So it's it's a slightly higher level executive and leadership training, um, more intensive four-day program. Um, very in-depth, very uh, hands-on, very interactive. And so uh, lots of great, uh, not only uh, teaching, but a lot of uh, team building within that that strengthens your ability to be a team, especially of leaders and managers. And then we rolled out a second version, which will always have these two, um, which is more, and both of them incorporate leadership and management, but at, at all the managers in the company. So if you were responsible for managing anyone, even a person, you were required to go through this, um, which was a two-day management program, which really allowed us to align how managers see the company for one and understand that we all have a common responsibility and that we all have some foundational ways that we should be thinking about managing our team so that we create consistency across our different teams and departments. And so um, over time, that becomes invaluable because, you know, people might move from one team to another. People might grow. Um, What if, uh, God forbid, a manager might have to leave for some reason or they might move to another city. Um, You want to have consistency in there, um, especially in your management, so that it's not a shock to the system if someone, if there's a change. And so we, uh, we worked really hard to give the team tools um, and and ways to think about uh, Fort Capital and how we manage, and some basic understanding of the importance of communication um, and all all sorts of great leadership tools. But um, what we really were looking for is creating consistency across our leadership and management. Yep. Let's talk about just kind of forward looking twenty twenty four. And I think to to set the tone, I think it would just be important to just revisit briefly what our strategy's been, how we've thought about it over the years, and really in a good way, like kind of remind people that not a lot's changed on the thesis. It's still every year you kind of think, well, maybe this is the year it doesn't quite fit this box or that box or this box. Um, But every year, the the same core tenants seem to actually be coming stronger and stronger. Uh, And so 
If you've listened to this podcast a while, you've heard us talk about some of these things, but I think we'll just go over them at a high level, which the first and foremost is we still have not seen any evidence that at any scale that could put a dent in supply that this asset class is getting rebuilt. Now, what some people will say is, oh, yeah, well, we see them um, getting built. And what they're really saying is on the outskirts of town uh, or in uh, suburbs of a major market. But remember, the stuff we're buying, we call it inside the loop of these major metros. So if you actually look inside the loop of these major metros, I'm not saying that zero square feet have been built. There's been a onesie twosie here and there. But we also like to remind people that a lot of this stuff is also getting depleted out. Mm-hmm. So it's either being re- converted into higher and better use or it's being torn down altogether. Um, and so net net in Texas, we've often said it's like a one to 2% decline per year in the inner city. And that carried through 2023. And we don't see any evidence that that would stop this year. Um, why there's not, a, there's not big pieces of land priced affordably construction costs while they've kind of topped out, they're still very high. You have tenants that aren't necessarily going to go pay a lot more rent just for a brand new building. So even if you could get a new building, is there actually truly demand for it? And cities don't want them. And cities don't want them. Yeah. And you can't go vertical with this stuff. I think this is one of the things that we kind of added to the thought process. But almost every asset class you can go vertical with. You see self-storage buildings that are now four or five stories high, multifamily, they built towers, office. Even some class A stuff. We saw the Even some of the class A stuff. Not in class B. Um, Even retail, you can go two stories high, so maybe not that much higher, but but still. Um, And so you're not at, uh, there's no threat to, oh, well, maybe they'll figure out how to build it on smaller pieces of land and and change. Uh, the tenant demand continues to grow, um, and they're also sticky to the building. So, um, as you've heard me say in the past, if you're in a class B apartment and you make more money, you move to a class A apartment or a house. If you're in a class B office and you make profit, you move to a class A office building Mm -hmm. in class B industrial. If you make more money, you don't go into class A industrial. You just kind of grow within it. So, um, which another interesting point in our tenant survey this year was that over 60% of our tenants thought they would expand in 2024. Um, the deal sizes are pretty small on a one-off basis. So it keeps in the big institutions from competing at a one-off basis, but that gives companies like ours huge opportunity to put together portfolios and there's premiums that are paid if you can put it all together and, and sell it up chain. Last mile locations, Every bit of data we have is the last mile matters more in 2024 than it did in 23. And that trend is going to continue the amount of technology and thought and process going into how to get every last drop out of the last mile continues. Uh, Predictable expenses. Mm -hmm. That's a huge one. It's huge. Almost every asset class, especially on the commercial side, uh, TI packages have gotten more expensive. The design requirements or more even the improvement cost just correct. improvement of a building yeah correct it's pretty minor our our tenants no matter what market they're in for the most part require the same ti they need a very functional office with paint carpet lighting they need a warehouse that works yep but they don't need i think what we've said in the past you know 
really nice marble or platinum toilets or something crazy. This is uh, a function of how your business operates. It's not something to really show off to people. And that's, you can't say, oh, well, in uh, Southern Florida, they do it differently. Virtually every market we look in, it's the exact same. And then on the CapEx on the exterior, um, the buildings are, I mean. Yeah. I mean, there's, that's where there's a little value there. Obviously that's why we buy them to clean them up, professionalize them, make them more attractive, but it's still there. It's, it's not a huge gap of where you need to take it from where it is from a cost perspective. Yeah. And so that's where the real value is. You don't need to go spend millions of dollars to make these buildings look good. If design and, and art is something that's important to you, this is not the asset class for you. This is, <laughs> this is more about function. And obviously we want our properties to look great, but I see some of these multifamily deals and office and retail. And it's, I mean, it's unbelievable the type of architecture. Well, the requirement keeps growing in all those asset class. The demand is, is what it is, but the requirement, it keeps growing. Yep. So, uh, 2024 outlook is all those major kind of pillars of our asset class remain intact. Obviously there's market fundamentals that will make it make times more attractive than others to buy. And so we can chat a little bit more about maybe how we're thinking about the fundamentals of the market, which, uh, we predicate with, we're not any, we don't have any genius idea that it's, this is not rocket science. We're taking, we're in the market every day. We're taking what we know day by day. We obviously have great networks and people to talk to, but, um, just like everybody else listening, I can't tell you what's going to happen in 24 hours. I think I know, but the world is is, is wild. So um, some themes I think we would talk about are we're preparing for rates to be higher for longer. To stable at a higher rate than they were historically over the last, call it, decade. I, uh, uh, if we were doing uh, fun predictions, I would be in the camp that there's not going to be six rate cuts this year. Maybe three. I'm, maybe two. Yeah, I'm in the same camp. I think the the best bet is just to be uh, conservative and plan in your underwriting or your forecasting that rates are going to stay elevated, but might retrace a little. And so what does that mean? 50 bips, something like that. That's that's a conservative approach. If they go better, if they go lower, great. You're in the win. You're in the money. Um, But I think the best bet is to be conservative because anything can change on a dime. Yep. Just on a deal flow perspective, we're looking at a lot. Mm-hmm. I think the the sentiment is we'll probably couldn't go under contract or contract on things, but the second half of the year is probably going to be more busy than the first half of the year. I would agree. Uh, and a lot of that is also aligned with our uh, what we talked about in the very beginning with our capital raising and structure that we're hoping to put in place uh, in the next few months and being prepared to take advantage of opportunities, which we think are coming. Yep. Um, I think we do think that there's been some some dislocation and some um, sort of uh, weeding out of it, whether it be certain operators or investors who just went through this cycle and are maybe getting squeezed a little more than maybe a group like ours is, um, as well as people that missed the top, right? So there, you, you have to remember there was a lot of people buying into the top that wish they would have taken advantage of it that really don't have the operational proficiencies that every group does that we like to try to focus on that really do need to sell as a part of their business plan. Their whole business plan is to buy, add value, sell. Now that the market is stabilizing a little bit with the uh, prediction that rates are going to come back a little and the market 
opening up a little bit is an opportunity for uh, sellers that are out there to try to capture that moment and, and potentially sell those assets less than they could have, say, a year ago, but still at, a, at an attractive, uh, at least in our asset class, uh, maybe not so much office, but um, sell those assets now. We think there's a ton of that opportunity coming, and so we'll be paying attention very closely to that. Rent increases will kind of normalize. So we saw like 16 to 20% rent increases across the portfolio in 2023. Yeah. And I mean, as high as a hundred percent, I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's a huge range of, of swing over the last two to three years, which has just been crazy. But you'll start to see it just kind of normal back to a more normalized growth rate. Yeah. We're, we're projecting in all of our forecasting, just standard historical rent growth, meaning historical looking way back. Right. Uh, so, you know, the standard, Three, four percent. Um, you know, we we judge that really closely based on specific locations and knowing what's going on. But we're also trying to be very conservative in that. In many cases, we're still achieving above that type of growth. Yeah. But looking forward, I think the trend is one hundred percent going to be some normalization in the short term. Slightly longer term, I do believe we're still everything you said that we believe in the asset class. We will see another ramp up. Because I think we still there still is a spread there of what is being charged versus what the market uh, and especially the tenant base uh, could and should pay for these locations and these assets. And so I think you're going and plus they're not building any more of it. I think you're going to see some uh, not in every location, but like in many asset classes in the best locations, there's a lot of room to run with rental rates. If you had to guess what market do you think will be the next market we go into that we're not into yet? What would you say? Yeah, I mean, our, our, I think our number one focus is we want to expand in the markets that we're in, uh, mostly San Antonio. Obviously, we DFW is our backyard, so if we can find good opportunities here, we will always look for that. Um, I, I think our best next opportunity that we're already in, besides Texas, is Orlando, which we're in, but it has been an outperformer by far. Um, it's an unbelievably strong market. It's very competitive. It's very hard to get into. Um, we, we're working on several deals there right now, which we're very hopeful uh, come to fruition. But um, that market is, has a lot of the dynamics that we look for. So that that's a key focus. I'd say from a new standpoint, brand new that we're not in yet, but we've worked very hard to be in is the Atlanta market, um, more in Tennessee, the Nashville market, uh, beyond that would be the Carolinas market, but we have so much opportunity between San Antonio, Orlando, DFW, another market that we've attempted many times, but we have never gotten into is Chris's hometown. Of I know. Well, I thought you were going to say that. Uh, I always, uh, hesitate to mention it cause it's so damn hard to get into. It's just, it's a tough market. It really is. But, uh, it's such a great market, and I think the growth there is going just going to be insane over the next decade from a distribution and uh, you know supply chain perspective. And so, obviously, there's a ton of opportunity there. Probably the people that focus on the land side are going to crush it. We yeah. we don't do that, so but we'll find opportunity there. I know uh, Chris has got so many contacts there. Eventually, we will. Uh, but yeah, so we've got a lot of target markets uh, and a lot of opportunity. But what we like to do is not spread ourselves too thin and think we're just going to go buy in every market. So what we do is we focus on the markets where we have opportunity that we're already in to get those markets to scale because there's plenty of opportunity there. And if you don't focus on it, you won't get it. 
So you could easily start focusing more on a new market that you're not in yet and miss out on opportunity in a market that you're already in. And so we first want to focus there. And at the same time, we're uh, always looking at and uh, trying to find opportunity in the markets that I mentioned. Uh, and I'd say the next one is probably going to be in Atlanta, uh, Nashville, or the Carolinas. But if I had to bet, it'd be Nashville. I mean, uh, Atlanta. As a brand new market. As a brand new market. Well, 2023 was interesting. I'm excited for uh, what 2024 will will bring us. We have so many positive things going on. You know, candidly, a part of the business I probably work on uh, the most is capital raising. And I'm really excited about what we have going on here. I'm excited about working with new partners. And if you're listening to this, and like I said, and you want to learn more about what we're going to do in this fundraise, we would love to to uh, chat with you. We have a huge pipeline. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about the next year, but we think of things in decades there is a huge, massive opportunity in front of us. And again, after 2023, the foundation's been built and the building blocks on top of it to really scale this company in a way that's meaningful, but doesn't lose touch with the number one goal, which is excellent returns to investors and everybody that works with us. So thank you for the sixth time that you've participated in this uh, year-end review. And uh, let's go make it happen in 2024. I'm ready. Let's do it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 